welcome to another episode of the Read More Podcast, the show that brings readers and writers together. I'm your host, Marva Hinton. Today, our guest is Richard Blanco. Many of us were introduced to him when he was chosen to be the inaugural poet at President Obama's second inauguration in 2013. The poem he recited then, One Today, spoke to the many things that unite us as Americans. One sun rose on us today, kindled over our shores, peeking over the Smokies, greeting the faces of the Great Lakes. Richard was the youngest inaugural poet in history, as well as the first Latino and the first openly gay poet to have such an honor. The search for identity has been a hallmark of his work. In 2014, he published an award-winning memoir, The Prince of Los Cucuyos, about growing up in Miami as the son of Cuban exiles. Today, we're in Richard's childhood home in Westchester, a Miami suburb that remains primarily made up of Cuban-Americans. Richard, thank you so much for welcoming us into your family home. That's great to be here. Thanks. (laughs) Now, it's been a while since you've lived here in Westchester. What is it like for you when you return to Miami, when you come back to this house? I mean, does it still feel like home? Um, This home, yes, in particular, it's still like the womb. (laughs) I still, you know, have all these, I mean, growing up here, all these memories. I know the furniture has changed and there's been remodeling and all that there's always like this wonderful feeling of coming home and of uh, safety and of um, actually whenever I'm feeling a little lost or depressed, I'd like to come home <laughs> to my mom's house, uh, my house, I guess. Um, so yeah, Miami itself, I, I mean, this this house itself and the neighborhood in general still sort of is pretty much the same, a lot more crowded than when we were growing up here because it was that was 1970s and there wasn't much <laughs> out west. Um, but yeah, it still feels great. How has your life changed since that day when you, at the president's second inauguration when you got up on the platform and you recited your pro, your poem one today? Um, we can imagine it's changed in so many different dimensions. Um, um, most importantly, and I think the greatest gift of uh, of that experience of writing the poems, of reading the poem, and still to this day, uh, as I like to say, it was this sense of finally becoming an American. You know, although um, I didn't feel not American, I still sort of, in my head, I still felt like I needed to be Peter Brady, or I thought America belonged to some other little kid on TV. I wasn't quite sure that my life fit the narrative of what America was, or the American dream, or the American story. And, and, uh, you know, reading that poem, being part of that moment, the historic moment, and also the honor of sort of representing that narrative for millions and millions of people like myself as a gay man, as a Latino, as an immigrant myself by 45 days uh, when I arrived to this country, just really hit me all of a sudden. I was like, this is a big deal. Like, And I suddenly felt like, like I, you know, so much of my work is about identity and home and place and community. And I finally felt that that search for home in a way I found home and home was in my backyard. So that was, that was a very emotional, significant sort of change. Besides that, as you can imagine, I've spent the last now over three years uh, traveling 80% of my time delivering lectures and readings and keynote speaking and workshops and all along these themes about 
about the very people that are in the poem about what is it you know what is that American narrative and and sort of sharing that from the most diverse places like the FDIC to <laughs> to um, the USDA to nurses associations Mayo Clinic um, all sorts of universities all sorts of uh, nonprofits and fundraisers for everything from immigration to LGBT youth and all this stuff so it's I've become this sort of uh, through my art, I've become sort of this spokesperson, uh, not a spokesperson, but um, uh, I've, been, I've been able to find venues to, to you know, continue that message and that I felt as this suddenly belonging in this sort of place in America. And I continue to sort of lend my work and, 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 um, and my poetry and, and myself to supporting groups that are doing all this great work in America. So that's, you know, I'm basically making a living as a writer, as a speaker which is, for a poet, is virtually impossible. I mean, we all teach or we all have other day jobs. So that's been sort of brand new. I've never had to earn a living or think of myself as, as, as a sort of professional writer or speaker, and I kind of am now. <laughs> Why did you decide to write your memoir? Uh, writing about your life and your family in such an intimate way, I mean, I think I would be terrified. Yeah. No, uh, I mean, uh, writers, you know, this is what we do. I mean, we, we sort of somehow have the courage. Um, and I think it's because, in part, the artist understands that his or her life is really, as I always like to say, is really about being a mirror to others. Not, you know, it's not about you. It's about you, but it's not about you. It's really about offering one's life and experiences as a way of, as bridging across across so many things, across culture, across um, gender, across race, across um, across sexuality, to see how we're all human beings. So that's always been a part of the big motivation of being an artist. Is always to to we use our personal lives and experiences to sort of expound uh, what does it mean to be a human being? You know, what is the human condition? What is human nature and how we behave? And the basic set of fundamental, you know, emotions that we all share, love, hate, jealousy, triumph, loss, all these things. Um, for me in particular, so, so that's one motive, sort of a larger, the artist always has this impulse to divulge and not for the sake of telling their story, but for the sake of how storytelling unites us and creates these, these, uh, uh, connects us to our shared humanity. That's in one part, and, and then the, the the more self self selfish part is that well, I also want to understand what all these experiences meant to my life and who I am, and 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 how did I become Richard Blanco, and who who is that little boy? And artists, unlike most people who don't write or or don't do any kind of art, you know, we we take the time to go back over these memories, back over time, to really find out those details, those nuances, um, and so we offer them to readers for them to sort of reflect on their own lives. Um, so that that that's a part of it, you know. I just want to investigate what my life is and and find out, you know. You know, as you know, the, the the unexamined life is not worth living, as they say, as Socrates said. I think right. One must examine one's life. Um, so that was part of it, and and part of it that has always motivated my poetry as well as this memoir is the sense of the artist as a emotional historian. I think it was important for me to record. Uh, you know, newspapers, uh, magazines, uh, uh, you know, um, press record things in a different way. Artists record the emotional imprint of what it means to live in a given period of time. 
and so outside of my own self and my own life I really I grew up in such a strong community of Cuban American exiles and so I wanted that to be I wanted to record what that felt like what those lives were like what what did it mean to live in Miami in the 70s and 80s um, for the sake of posterity you know just for that so that it's it's written somewhere what what it meant like what what it meant emotionally to live um, this experience which in the end of the day is universal in the same way it's very particular but it's the same as universal we've all been strangers in a strange land in some way or another well I feel like it's it's one thing to use your experiences to shape your art. I mean, you can do that, though, without explicitly sort of going all in, like, you right, know, right. doing the memoir. What made you decide, you know, instead of just having it be an influence, because obviously it's an influence for your poetry, but to just write your story? I mean, what made you want to do that? Um... I think um, part of it, I mean, I think in poetry was, in the three books of poetry are very similar in themes and characters and whatnot, but poetry had its limitations as far as storytelling. It's really hard to sort of write a poem about Easy Cheese or Winn-Dixie and the funny parts of the memoir, that comic, tragic sense of life that is to be Cuban. So I wanted to see how I could... I, how could I expand those stories through another genre and be able to storytell more and bring to life these other characters and whatnot? I think all writers make a choice as to how personal or distant it can be equally powerful. I think, um, you know, whether one wants to be more narrative or lyrical, uh, whether one wants to write nonfiction or creative nonfiction about the same topic. I think every, or every artist has a certain comfort level. And the effect is the same. Everything, you know, the, you know, an essay can make you cry as much as a poem when it's done right, right? Um, but for me, I've always felt like my life is an open book. I've never been re very, I've never been shy about sort of forcing my life on people. <laughs> um, and then again, I'm not really doing anything that's sort of an expose. You know, I don't have any really deep, dark family secrets except maybe, you know, my relationship with my grandmother that was... That was so troublesome. Um, but I've always felt, again, it gets back to this idea. I feel like I am, you know, that, that I am, um, I don't have a choice. Like, I am a slave to the muse. I'm a, I'm, I am a slave to the art. And whatever the art demands that I do, you have to go there. And sometimes we as writers, we actually write things that, we won't publish them, but we'd still need to write them and because we'll, maybe we're not ready to publish them. But yeah, I mean, it's this idea that you're paying homage. You're, you're, you're under, you're under the spell of, of the art and the muse and whatever that demands of you, um, sort of trumps any other kind of reservation because in a weird way, um, it's paying attention to the art and following the discipline of the art that you 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 come to discover new things that otherwise you wouldn't. And sort of, the art allows us to go to places that we've not we've not been as writers, and I think for readers the same way. So, I've just always regarded the art as you know my my boss. You know. Well, the writing here it's just it's so beautiful. I mean, it's really vivid. It puts you right there. As far as your process did you have to do something different 
um, from what you normally would do as say when you're sitting down to write a poem I, I guess I want to know how you approach this was it like oh I'm writing a very long poem here yeah. or is it just something completely different yeah, it, it was a process, and actually when I first started writing, I thought I was going to do a set of a, 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 a set of essays, and I did write about eight or nine essays that dealt with some of these topics, but then some of the feedback on the essays were like, these are great essays, but you know, here's one line where I really want to know this whole story behind this little thing that you mentioned, uh, it's about, you know, my grandfather and my grandmother. And and then sort of it, it served to give me some kind of outline about the things and the stories I wanted to tell. But the essays were, you know, essays begin with the idea and you support the idea, whereas a memoir or prose or poetry, sort of they begin with the feeling and you just let the story unravel as as your feelings unravel about a memory or 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 any given sort of subject matter. The important thing for me, I, I've started to explore other genres because again, I felt um, you know, that, that there was so much backstory and so much backlog of things that I still want to tell, but I knew that poetry, I had done it already in poetry, and that there were things that I needed to, stories I wanted to tell that the poetry couldn't contain because they were just different in nature. Um, so I just started exploring uh, writing, after the essays, I, I started exploring writing a memoir, and I'm even sure it was going to be a memoir, but I just was having so much fun. Um, and it was just sort of storytelling, and I just... Uh, I was having a blast. I mean, it was really fun to write, and and for a poet to write like a ten thousand word, you know, piece that was like insanely wonderful. I was like, oh my god, I just wrote ten thousand words, and never knew I could do it. But one of the hardest things to learn for, I think, most poets um, that that start writing memoir or narrative of some kind, or um, you know, or novel or whatnot, is the idea of plot. You know, poetry poetry doesn't revolve around plot. It can be narrative, but there's still not. It's not plot driven, um, and it's you know. And so that's one of the hardest things. Is to, I just kept on telling myself, you know, what happens next? What happens next? Is you can't be for three pages describing the plastic covered sofa, which in a poem you could have uh, you could have a whole poem about the plastic covered sofa. That's amazingly powerful, but. Uh, when you're talking about writing 300 pages of prose, you got to keep the action moving. You got to keep, you know. And so that was one of the hardest things to learn because as poets, we're never concerned about plot. Plot doesn't drive us. What drives a poem is the images, um, is the depth of emotion, it's it's the nuances. And they're short, right? So it's like, you know, you are, have this self-contained universe. So really the memoir is in some ways the first half of my first book of poetry unpacked that's how much that's how much you have to unpack to write prose right there's so much more that you have to fill in it's such a larger room and you have to fill in with so many things um and so that was a really big learning experience well as you said you didn't have any big you know exposés here but i'm wondering did you feel like you needed permission to write this i mean to write so many things uh about your family members um, and not all of them, of course, positive. Did you feel like, did you, did you talk to your mom about this or did you just go for it and then talk, discuss it later? No, um, I, I mean, I think I have a special circumstance. Number one, I don't think it's a coincidence that I wrote this, you know, after my grandmother and my grandfather, my grandfather died. It's like it's a lot easier to, 
as people die, it's a lot easier to write stuff. Uh, that's one thing. The other thing is uh, so there, there's a linguistic and uh, sort of uh, generational cultural gap. So a lot of the elders in my family will never read that book. Um, my mother has a working knowledge of English. She can get by and you know has worked in a bank for 40 years but you know so I've never written out of that fear because for the most part most of my family wouldn't even read it even the ones that even my generation of family members when it was with poetry like they probably wouldn't even read my now they've all read my poetry of course <laughs> um so so it was more it was a little more yes I wrote with more ghosts in the room because in, in the memoir, I also was feeling this probably will be translated into Spanish, has a good chance to be translated into Spanish, unlike the poetry. And I was also writing, like never before, about um, members of the family of my generation who know English, obviously, and would read this stuff. So there was a little, a little more caution, um, a little more sort of people popping into the room. A couple of the more important ones was my brother, for example. Um, and uh, I revised it. I revised the memoir a bit because I've, my, I, my brother, I wrote my brother out as this complete brat and pain in the butt, which he was, but so was I. So I had to implicate. I went back and not made myself look like this little angel. So it was really about us two always on, on each other's nerves, you know, and fighting and calling each other names. Boy stuff, right? Sibling stuff when, you, when you're that age. Um, and then there were like a couple of cousins and things like that um, that I just tried to make sure that that there wouldn't be anything that that I that I said that I didn't need to say that would have been derogatory or somehow be mistaken for some other be misinterpreted. But the other thing that was that was odd and that was most mostly uh, sort of apprehensive about was Miami itself, uh, because you know this book is so much about growing up in Miami and so the city itself is a character I mean I'm trying to draw out Miami through these relationships through this community and I was mostly apprehensive about Miamians going like that's not the way this was or that wasn't over there or, I don't remember it like that or like how dare you write about Miami this way or that way or you know I really wasn't sure how Miamians were uh going to respond uh so there was a, this virtual character in between the lines and and luckily um everybody especially in westchester like classmates from grade school and stuff that's in the book um they just just love just love that someone wrote about our lives you know and uh, and i think you find that most most writers unless you're doing something really scandalous that most memoirs and most writers that uh their experience usually is that usually family members are so flattered that you're even mentioning them <laughs> that you know they're just sort of tickled in a way unless you're like you know exposing them as a pedophile or something like that pretty much they're so flattered um that that it's usually not a problem and i did i did change everybody's name which was really confusing i had to make a list of like <laughs> people's fictional names they're nicknames in because then cubans always nickname people right there's all these terms of endearment and then what their real character is in my real life so <laughs> that was i had to make a list because it got a little confused it's like who was that again <laughs> again well it's funny because you just mentioned this I, I was wondering as i was reading this 
what the reaction had been. I mean, was anybody upset? Was anybody like, oh, I can't believe you portrayed me that way? Or was anybody like, oh, well, why am I not in the book? Anything like that? No, no, nobody. There there was one cousin that I, uh, that I apologized to before the book came out because I really wanted to write her in. But she, and she was the daughter of my aunt in the Cuban grocery store. But she really wasn't part of my life till older, till I was older in my 20s. So I, just, I couldn't find a way to really fit her in. And like I, I sent her this email like apologizing because almost every other cousin is in there. Um, so so that, that was one thing. And there, was, um, there, are, there, there are two cousins who are, it's in the chapter of uh, Queen of the Copa, my two cool cousins from New York City who have lived here now for decades, right? And... Um, and there, I was apprehensive about them because they're like, I really love them, and I just wanted to make sure I caught them right. And they, they loved it. You know, they're like, the thing is, memory is weird, and so pe- people remember what you remember, and uh, and it's really fascinating. I was just watching this documentary on memory, and we have this idea that memory is. Um, kind of like a library and it's a book that you you know you put in and you check out and you read the book and you put it back but they're discovering that memory every time you check out the book it's more like you're opening up a computer file and you're revising it because every time you take out a memory you're recoloring it with your present experience and then you put it back and it seems like the same book but it's not and uh so when people sort of read about a memory um I'm revising their memory subconscious even though they don't know it and they're like yeah that's the way it happened like that happens with my brother all the time um he he read the book he's the one person that i gave it to before it went to print and just for his blessing um and he's like man you got it you got everything just right and i'm like I mean, and half the stuff is sort of, you know, writing about being seven years old. So, <laughs> you know, I couldn't have gotten it exactly right. I mean, sort of the feeling of it, right? But uh, I think that's what artists do. Even in, even in my poetry, like people, I've rewritten our family history according to my to, to according to my memory because people's memories are so malleable at the same time. So it's really interesting to watch that. Well, I'd like to talk about your grandmother now because you mentioned you know that there was some apprehension there because she was a big part of your life uh she lived with your family and she was really quite a character i mean she was very interesting uh, a shrewd negotiator i mean she ran numbers but she was very hard on you i mean it's like she seemed to know before you did that you were gay and that really upset her a lot and she tried to to change that what was it like going back to that time thinking about it and then actually sitting down and writing about it yeah i mean i i think i've written in poetry too so it wasn't completely fresh and of course i've gotten plenty of therapy and have dealt with my grandmother in my head for many years uh what was interesting to discover though in the writing process was that I'm much more vicious about my grandmother in my poetry, but somehow in prose, you know, she comes across as this sort of really fun character. And in a way, in real life, she was. She was the life of the party. She always had a gossip. She was a numbers runner, like you said. She had tons of friends and acquaintances and some of them very questionable and shady characters. She always had a story to tell, you know. And so everybody loved her, all my cousins and everything. They and But they never saw the dark side of her behind closed doors, which was the verbal abuse, 
the sort of scheming, the fights with my mother, <laughs> um, which I got to see, and in particular, you know, when it came down to, to my sexuality, which was very confusing to me because on the one hand, my grandmother, I think we all have a relative like this, you know, someone who's our best friend, but is also our enemy, someone who uh, is our, our, our sort of support and support system, but also our detractor and can crush you in a minute, especially when you're a little kid. So, you know, I just started feeling, and I still had to deal with this idea that love was conditional, and it all depended on how I behaved, how much my grandmother would love me. Um, but in a way, she was my buddy at the same time. I mean, I, I lived in awe of her. Um, and when I was good, it was good. When I was bad, when I, when I was like a little, you know, feminine or gay or something like that, then I was like rejected. And that was very, that's very confusing for it. It's not that confusing as an adult, but as a child, that really makes a incredible imprint on you and the verbal abuse and the sort of name calling and the stuff that nobody else would see. So it was like, am I crazy here? Like, <laughs> so uh, I got a chance to to sort of really look at her exterior and interior character through the memoir, which I hadn't done in poetry because poetry just goes through the interior, right? So that was interesting to sort of part of the healing process of writing this was like, you know, my grandmother was a pretty funky cool person. <laughs> no wonder I liked her. Uh, you know, there was all this other stuff. But but I also realized that that was also part of her kookiness and part of her ignorance and part of her generational thing. And, and so let me let go of stuff a little bit more, and especially when you look at your childhood as an adult you realize that, that you're not that little kid anymore and those things hurt but they hurt then and they don't have to hurt now you are not that pain you know if my grandmother were, were to tell me some of the things she told me when i was six seven eight years old now i'd like I'd like laugh at her and go you crazy bitch <laughs> what the hell are you talking about you know get out of my face you know it wouldn't hurt me i mean it would hurt me it would bug me but it wouldn't have that deep impact so Allowing in the memoir to be that little kid from an adult perspective, let me put things in more context. And what about your mom? You mentioned that, I want to make sure I phrase this correctly, that did you say she hasn't read this or what is her relationship with the memoir? I don't think she has. Um, if she has, she hasn't told me about it. She, we, she doesn't really talk about my literature with me. I don't know why. I've written tons of poems about her. Um, so there are translations of some of these things in Spanish, but my mother's a very difficult person to sort of read, and uh, our relationship is much more stoic and revolves around, did you eat, you know, <laughs> what time are you coming home, still that kind of relationship. And, but I also think, you know, not knowing English as well, I don't think she can savor the nuances or the or the flavor of what that what a piece of art of literature is in English and so and so even though she might read it it might not you know she might not you know really capture everything that's going on and the only thing is she jokes with me and says that I should she should get royalties because I've been such an inspiration <laughs> and I have she's my she's my lifeline to Cuba she's in a part since she left her entire family in Cuba behind we always grew up with that with this big sort of um, void in our house um, because we knew my mother's entire family you know you know and until the 70s you really didn't know if you were ever ever going to be able to see so we just grew, grew up in that emotional uh, sort of aura in the house and that sense of loss and longing and pain and so um, 
and so in a way a lot of my writing has been in a way subconsciously to try and heal my mother to tell those stories uh, to tell her story and uh, and that's okay I mean I don't really expect anything back from I think most art writers will tell you the same thing they like parents can be a little weird about <laughs> about about the, about about your career as a writer but we don't we don't at the end of the day we don't write for their approval or disapproval we're like beyond that we write because we have to write and and we just have to tell our truth well as a cuban american what do you think about what's happening right now you know with the us restoring diplomatic relations with cuba i mean what was it like for you to go to Cuba and actually be there to read your poem home when the American embassy reopened? Well, I, I mean, I've been to, I've been going to Cuba since 1994, so it wasn't my, my first rodeo, so to speak. Um, um, but I just mean, you know, your first time back since all of this has happened. Yeah, yeah, no, it was, it was an incredible emotional experience. I mean, it's something that I never even dreamed would ever happen. Um, and certainly in a, in a weird way, more emotional than even the inauguration because number one, it was a much more intimate and closer to home thing. So, um, and a lot more complex, um, you know, there's always, there's I mean, the whole Cuban American Cuba thing is still something that nobody, you know, sometimes I just get sick of like trying to figure it and nail it down, you know, and it depends on what day of the week and how you feel about it and all this kind of stuff. So I, but overall, I'm just very, very hopeful and positive, but a bit anxious at the same time. Uh, I've had occasion uh, uh, about three weeks ago uh, to speak uh, very informally with the president um, about it. Um, well, he spoke, I listened <laughs> uh, a little bit about his opinions and what he was thinking about. And it, it helped me to think, uh, you know, his intentions are nothing but good and, and positive, and he's there for the good of the Cuban people. Um, but I think all, all us, all us Cuban American communities, whether you're, you know, left of center, right of center, whatever, wherever you fall in the spectrum of, I think, you know, I think we, I, I don't think we doubt necessarily our president's intentions. I think what we're more fearful of um, is that we hope that the Cuban government follows through and responds in, in a way. And, you know, they haven't made many concessions, and that's, just, that's a genuine gripe. But I think there's a longer-term strategy here going on. And, you know, uh, uh, the United States ain't no dummy, you know? <laughs> I think they're just saying, all right, here, here, you know, you know, it's the art of the deal, right, of negotiation. But pretty soon they're going to start wanting to, they're going to start cashing in those chips and saying, well... We gave you this, that. So I think there's a longer term strategy. But of course, we are we as human beings in general are also reactionary and we see short term things. But but I think it's that apprehension as well. I mean, we we just um, you know we're fearful that despite all the great intentions, that the Cuban government won't respond and that nothing will change. As well as in Cuba, I, I think you know they have the same kind of sort of anxious hope or or you know pessimistic hope uh that that this is not just another song and dance you know uh i i think there has been you know there's definitely been a, a new line drawn in the sand there's a, the needle has definitely moved i don't think this is going back ever to what it was before uh so i'm very happy um uh, i'm very hopeful uh, at the same time 
you know, it's really odd to say, but at the same time, nobody likes change either. So it's part of me is saddened that Cuba may someday just be another country <laughs> that people just go to. It felt like, you know, as long as it was this place that people can go to, that it was my Cuba because I could go anytime I want. <laughs> you know, I feel like I feel like I've had to let ownership that I'm going to have to let a lot of that ownership go, you know. Um, but that's okay. I mean, it's obviously more important for the people of Cuba to lead better and more prosperous lives in my own selfish little, <laughs> you know, you know, like just had this like, no, oh, Cuba's mine, you know, it's nobody else's, you know. Uh, so, so that's going to be interesting to watch what happens in the next five, ten years, you know, and how Cuba will unfold. But getting back to the idea of home and question, what was what was also very emotional about was that, you know, it's just suddenly this, I felt for once part of this great American narrative, right? Like I finally felt like I had arrived in America and, and that didn't feel I needed to be any kind of fictional character from history books or from television or from... Um, from from that narrative that my narrative was American but then you know this opened up a whole new set of questions you know asking what is home is like asking what is love it's and there's never a fixed answer and it changes through time it changes through circumstances so it made me start rethinking about like wow like am I not Cuban enough for this Cuba and I mean now the possibility of having a real Cuba a real relationship with an island and its people an intimate relationship that wasn't just going every five or six years and seeing family and, hey, and everything's fine and you know talking about the old days and talking with family to not really having a relationship with an island and a people and three generations of people that have sort of gone through Cuba now and realizing wait Cuba is a real country it's not just part of my heritage and my mind and my memory and my family's collective memory and our community's memory but it's a real country that I need to catch up a lot on so so that was sort of a new sort of relationship or or now a new sort of goal or a new um task of thinking about that and then I always felt that I either had to be Cuban or American. And then suddenly, you know, I felt this American. And I was like, but I can't be Cuban now. Like, it's too late. But what all this has really made me really start thinking is about how the world is, where we're evolving. Um, and that the idea of nation is really, in a way, something that's just sort of becoming archaic or the very beginnings of the decay. I think we're living in this idea of nation as this neat little country with borders and an army when the rest of the world when when the other narrative that's going on is we're completely interconnected through modes of communication through modes of transportation through economies are completely connected and sort of there's this narrative and then of, of that interconnectivity and yet there's another narrative that we also try to cling to and mostly politicians try to use sometimes like no we're this or we're, we're not them we're better than them or they're better than us let's bomb them you know <laughs> you know that that tribal mentality that we really gotta we really gotta stop or, or start or begin to sort of taper down because it's such a 19th century idea that that you can live in an isolated country and protect yourself in some weird way and isolate yourself and exist. And that just is, that just is an impossibility in today's world. Yet at the same time, the response is, you know, nobody wants to be homogenous, right? We all want to claim some kind of identity, right? So I think that the challenge for future generations is how do we celebrate 
how do we celebrate um you know who we are our cultures our heritage and yet and yet but also from the from the point of view that at the end of the day we're all really one people um beyond nations and if we're going to survive into the next few centuries we're going to have to start thinking like that and cooperating and thinking of ourselves as global citizens not just oh i'm american or i'm cuban like rather oh, i'm both actually <laughs> and i may be french too if i feel like someday you know but the, so that's where i'm thinking about home now in the senses home as in the planet we're all home and we need to take care of home and we need to take care of each other and that's why i can't wait for the aliens to find their land so that we can finally say oh i'm from brooklyn or i'm from like arizona no we're from earth how are you <laughs> how you doing <laughs> well just as you were talking there you may not even have realized you did this but you just you know casually said you talked to the president sure. uh, <laughs> what is the relationship like there now because of you know the fact that you were chosen to speak at his inauguration does that mean that you know you're you're pals well we're not exactly pals <laughs> you know I'm, I'm, I'm you know maybe a phone call away from him through some of the staff that I've met at the White House certainly but we're not pals I mean I can't just call and say hey Barack, how you doing? What you have for lunch? You know, but they have invited me to several things at the White House, um, different parties, different occasions. One of the uh, the white the the first lady as well has invited me to the White House um, for things having to do with poetry, and so in different capacities. And so we, well, he knows who I am, which is pretty cool, right? And I certainly know who he is. Um, and I'm involved now in in, in part in, in some other issues, so some other things that they asked me to chime in about that I, not liberty to say, but it was very honored to do so. Um, not not anything having to do with Cuba actually. So they look at me as uh, you know as a writer, as a poet, and I think they 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 tap my shoulder every once in a while um, to for things or functions where 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 they feel they you know, can compliment what their mission is, and I feel the same way. You know, I in my readings and things like that i i i try to expound you know what i feel of positively about his presidency and and the obamas in general and the good work that i think they've done for this country and changing that narrative and i think that's why so many people object to him because nobody likes change you know the the narrative it's easier to stick to the old narrative than to rethink a new one especially when you're older and stuff like that so so that's kind of my relationship with him you know i write him a letter every once in a while he responds you know but we're not yeah i'm not like i don't have a seat on air force one in fact i almost i tried to wiggle my way into going to cuba <laughs> with him um uh but the the uh the staff said that that it was virtually impossible because everybody from congress wanted to go and stuff and i also thought you know that's not really my place this is an official trip and he's going with his family too but i'm kind of like a little envious but um but uh yeah you know i've offered him some comments in letters about you know about the pulse of my generation of cuban americans and how i see it so i try to offer whatever help i can and um and uh yeah like that well i i was just wondering i remember when you were chosen to be the inaugural poet and there were you would talk about your mom and how excited she was and how proud and i imagine 
I mean, that's just gone through the roof now to think about, you know, her son who, you know, is named after president, you know, Richard Nixon is actually talking to the president. He's listening to you for your ideas. Yeah. How does that, I mean, does she just Uh, overjoyed or? No, I think my mother thinks I'm lying half the time. (laughs) I don't think she thinks, she's always thought I've been a little crazy. Like, I'm what crazy artist went. So I'm not sure how seriously she takes. I don't, I don't know if she really believes half the stuff I tell her. And like, hey mom, I met Tom Hanks yesterday. It's like, who? (laughs) So I don't know. I, my mom is just a weird character. Um, she she feels a lot more than what she says, which is odd for a Latino and a Cuban. But she's actually a very quiet woman. Um, you know, you got to understand this is a woman who grew up in a dirt floor home in Cuba, and and the depth of the experiences that I've had, she can't even imagine what that really even is like. So there's like, sadly, like there's this kind of kind of a gap. Uh, you know, I try to that I can't. She can't fathom sometimes the things that have been happening to me. She sort of watches them from afar. You know, like my parents don't know who even the Rolling Stones were. You know, so there's these cultural gaps, these gaps of experience. And, you know, to see their kids from, you know, the country country home that she grew up into, Westchester is like, you know, it's like going to Versailles. You know, and then much less what her children have done in the world. So here at Read More, we like to find out how your reading life has affected your life as a writer. And usually one of the things I always ask is, you know, what's the first thing you read that really resonated with you or, you know, just made me say, wow. But you actually mentioned that in Mm -hmm. the memoir. I mean, can you tell us about the impact reading the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock has on you? Um. Well, poetry is just so amazing that it continues to have an effect. Again, as you change um, new experiences in your life, you read this poem again, and suddenly another door opens of uh, another understanding. So um, that poem is still with me, and I still read it like once a month. (laughs) And the most recent incarnation was, um, there's this line in there that says, do I dare eat a peach? And and it has to do, because it's an older, middle-aged man who's a character and is about his di- constipation or whatnot. And recently I was in the hospital uh, about a, a year ago with uh, diverticulitis, and I called my friend Nikki and I said, do I dare eat a peach? <laughs> and suddenly I was that, and suddenly I was proof rock. I was this middle-aged man in the hospital. I'm not quite middle-aged yet, but in the hospital with my first sort of real sort of ever sort of health issue and so that poem opened up opened up a whole other understanding too you know it's still one of my favorite poems in addition to being a poet you're also an engineer you received a degree in engineering from florida international university and that's also where you received your mfa in creative writing so how does your brain balance those two things i mean how are they connected for you sure um well, I guess I, I've always been a left brain, right brain kid. Like, um, I loved math, and then I loved art, and then I loved, you know, I just loved everything. Um, and I've scored exactly the same. And all those standardized tests, I score exactly the same to the number on verbal and analytical. So I'm kind of a special case in that sense. But I still strongly believe that that real intelligence or real education, I should say, is understanding that all knowledge is valuable and is all connected in some ways. And that certainly has been the case for me. Um, uh, I started writing in my engineering office because my engineering office was, I spent 60%, 65% of my time was writing, writing report, reports, studies, letters, um, proposals, 
all these kinds of things. And I started falling in love with language and realizing that language was designed and that language was, you know, writing a great letter was like sort of doing a math problem, you know, and that, and that every letter was unique and every report was unique. And there's this idea of audience and word choice and all this stuff. So it's where I really started feeling language as this living thing and the, the textures of it. And um, I excelled in my job. I, besides, you know, my engineering, I, I started excelling and was the go-to person for writing. And that was part of my success as an engineer was as a damn good writer. <laughs> um, and I'd get, the, I'd get the jobs because I knew how to write the great proposals and I knew how to sort of stand up in front of a city council and deliver a presentation and all this stuff. So, so all those writing skills, you know, you know, we teach everything so siloed in the United States as if English class has nothing to do with engineering class and math has nothing to do with the arts. And it's actually math has helped me more in my art than I think in engineering in my writing because so much of writing is left brain. So it's so, especially in the editing process, it's about finding logic and patterns and structure. And that's really how a poem is built in a way. Um, and how to break that logic is the, the, the important part. But to break that logic, you got to know logic, right? So a lot of the same math skills of problem solving, I use... I see. I feel my brain using even in writing, uh, in writing poetry. So, I think it's yes. As careers, they're obviously completely different things and paths. But, um, but I have found a great balance between the two. And actually, I taught for five years full time. I taught creative writing, and I felt completely off balance because all I was talking about was writing and and. And all I was reading was poetry <laughs> and my left brain was kind of going like, what are we going to do now? Like it was bored. And then it actually became, it took it out on the writing and started making the writing much more formulaic and trying to sort of force the poem uh, to, to left brain, you know? So I think, and, and I think, I think any successful career or person or innovator or leader, it's really about synthesis of knowledge. And this is what, why reading is great, obviously, because it opens up whole worlds of knowledge for us that we can incorporate to being as doctors, as lawyers, as engineers, as nurses, whatever we are. Um, and, and it's all valuable. And, 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 you know, all great ideas happen when people synthesize information, not reduce it to, you know, so to, to infinite little pieces that then connect to nothing and there's so many examples if you look throughout history like Margaret Thatcher was a chemist um, <laughs> Alfred Hitchcock was I believe an electrician or studied electrical engineering for a while and they, they say his precision about his film comes from that sort of engineering left brain mind um, the chief en structural engineer of the Golden Gate Bridge was a uh, was a poet uh, William Carlos Williams was a pediatrician. Um, and I think, you know, I, as I always tell my uh, students uh, around, the, around the country and around the world now, uh, as uh, when I'm a speaker, is that, you know, you may not be getting a liberal arts degree, but you sure as hell better have a liberal arts uh, attitude and approach towards life because it really, to use all of your brain, uh, no matter what you're doing, is really really a key to success as far as seeing and not even just success but just happiness in a way to to understand your whole self and to understand your whole self you kind of need to use your whole brain right well richard you are actually the first poet um, that we've had on as a guest here at read more so i'd ask, like to just ask you some questions for readers who are new to poetry mm -hmm. or you know maybe they haven't really read much poetry since they got out of school are there 
three poets that you would recommend to someone like that who's new to poetry, just to sort of an opening because sometimes it can feel as someone who doesn't write poetry is like, well, where do I begin? You know, this is a little hard for me to understand. Are there there three poets you think would maybe make good starter poets? Sure, sure. Um, Me. (laughs) I think I'm pretty accessible. Uh, Billy Collins. um, And who else do I like? Robert Haas. Uh, I would say are and are three pretty you know and my own my own mentor from FIU Campbell McGrath, but but I think the larger question is is and um, you know I'm serving, I'm serving now as education ambassador for the Academy of American Poets and um, one of the things in the process of the inauguration that I realized is that people just have such a miseducation of poetry. It's not that they don't like poetry. It's not that poetry is difficult. It's that they got that one poem in high school from that's 800 years old, and poetry never became something relevant, or they just don't know anything about poetry. Um, but it's not that they don't like poetry. And what I've been seeing now as you know, the inauguration has opened the doors to not the usual suspects to bring me in, like I said, the Mayo Clinic, um, the USDA, the FDIC. I mean, I've read a poem at uh, the TD Boston uh, Boston Strong concert for 60,000 people waiting to see Aerosmith. You know, when you give people a chance with a contemporary poem uh, that's accessible, accessible and um, honest and well-felt, um, the response is just just like, why did I never read poetry before? But we also have to qualify that because this is something that, again, a miseducation or a misunderstanding of the artist that they just think of poetry as this monolithic thing, poetry with a big P. You know, there's so many different kinds of poets, just like there are different kinds of music, just like there are different kinds of novels and different movies. Different, And so no one ever says, oh, that movie was terrible. I'm never going to see another movie in my life. And unfortunately, what we have a lot in high school, and that's what I'm trying to work, is helping teachers to have their own experience with poetry and, and earn an appreciation and an understanding of poetry so they can pass that on to their children and break the cycle. And I, there's several organizations that are trying to do that, but that's been one of my main causes. So for those of you um, you know, who um, are interested in poetry, I recommend those. But I also recommend get an anthology. There's a book... Um, comes out every year it's called great american uh, best american poetry it comes out every year and it's the latest of the latest people that are these are these are poems that aren't, aren't even in books yet they're just poems that are published in different journals and pick the one or two you might hate 90 percent of what's in there it's okay but you might see that one or two or three authors two or three poets that you're going to adore and that's okay. You don't have to love every poet. Give yourself permission to hate poetry, but give yourself permission to also love a poet or two. And it's not a matter of you have to love all poetry or all poetry. God knows. I don't I don't care for half of the poetry that's out there myself, you know. Or I can recognize that it's good, but it's not for me, you know. I don't I don't it's it, you know, it's about finding the right poet for you. And so an anthology is great rather than committing to buying a book by someone that you're not even sure you're going to like. Get like uh, get like sort of uh, those those kinds of anthologies and just familiar right and see who speaks to you. It's the best advice I think I can give you. And not and don't worry. It's don't be afraid. It's it's not that you don't like poetry. It's just, it's just you know most people say oh I, I don't I don't like poetry and don't read you know and then you ask them well what was the last poem you read or it's been forty years like you, know, you don't like it's not that you don't like poetry it's just you've not read poetry. <laughs> 
and go try to go to a poetry reading, which is a whole different experience. Uh, poetry's roots are in, in song and in oral tradition, and there's nothing like a good poetry reading, especially by some of the poets that are more performance arts, uh, performance poets, performance-oriented, spoken word poets. And you're going to see that. Literature is, you know, like living, breathing thing. We've been reading poems and reading uh, and sharing poems as a community for many more hundreds of years than we've been reading any books because there were no books. <laughs> so in a way, Shakespeare was a spoken word artist, you know. You mentioned that there's a lot of poetry that, you know, you don't like. Right. Just because you're a poet doesn't mean you have to like all yeah, poetry. No, that doesn't, right. yeah. So can you, is there any particular poet who's maybe very popular and that people would know? This is not someone who would be in one of those anthologies. This is someone that, you know, the general public, everybody knows, but maybe just never really resonated with you. Um, it's interesting because um, I'm trying to think. I don't want to make any enemies, but there are some poets like that have won Pulitzer Prizes that are more like languagey poets that I understand are brilliant or whatnot, but not my cup of tea. And years ago... I, I think Jory Graham, for example, is someone who I respect, but I don't necessarily read because I like more narrative stuff. Um, but she's, she's a professor at Harvard, so I can kudos, you know, I understand. But I also have the right to reserve my sort of opinions, or not opinions, but uh, takes, right? We all do in art. We don't love every period of art and things like that. Um, but yeah, so so that, that's someone that comes to mind because I used to have to read her in grad in grad school, and I just was like not my thing, you know. And it took me a while to give myself permission to say just because someone wins a Pulitzer Prize doesn't mean I have to like them. Um, uh, but surprisingly, although most well-known poets, uh, poets that are very sort of acclaimed, like oh, I was going to say also another great poet is Natasha Trethway, who uh, uh, Patricia Smith. I mean, yes, Patricia Smith. Uh, Tracy K. Smith, these are all poets that are completely sort of accessible, uh, have their pulse on sort of social justice issues, that have a depth of honesty and clarity in their work that I can't understand anybody not being floored by at least one or two poems of theirs. Um, so surprisingly, most of the poets that sort of make it are in that school of sort of people's poets. And yet we don't really think about that in America. But these Billy Collins is like, I mean, he's also hilarious. Like poets have a great sense of humor, uh, which people always think poets were like these. Like we're always just sitting around thinking about really deep things. And it's like, no, <laughs> like, we, we have our funny poems and we have our wry sense of humor and whatnot. So it, it, it gladdens me to know that that actually, you know, that the public does reward in a way uh, that accessibility. Because these are these are people that are pretty well, that people read. I mean, and, and it's because of, you know, and, you know, there's a, this big sort of, that I hate that, you know, it's like accessibility is like a four-letter word for some of the academic poets or academic academia. And it's like, to me, accessibility and simplicity are not, they're not, they're not synonyms, you know, <laughs> and they're not accessibility and and uh, and the complexity are not, um, you know, how is it? Something can be very accessible and be completely complex. And actually, some of the best poems are seemingly simple. 
seemingly very accessible, but when you read them and the layers of the complexity that they have, and I think, I think the job of a poet is about distilling those very complex things in life and giving them to the reader in sort of this this crystallized, distilled form, so that there's there's suddenly a, a certain lucidness about them that that creates an aha moment in the reader as well. So what are you working on right now? I mean, you mentioned you're doing all these speaking engagements. Do you still find that you're having the time to sit down and, and write your poetry? Um, not as much, obviously. I, I mean, I have written, I don't know how I wrote two books in the last, two prose books in the last three years, but um, um, I'm getting back into now, but I've never worried about that. I'm not one of those writers. I think that's another sort of myth that, writers get up and write every day first of all writers are moms and fathers and they have car accidents and they have jobs and they have all the rest you know bad days and good days we try to write as much as we can but we're also write we all have different routines and I have never been one of those daily writers I write in spurts so I I ferment and I collect and then I'll sit down for eight months and write a book um I take little notes here and there but I I mean, I mean, I try to enjoy life in its moment and not, you know, if you're always worried about, I should be writing, I should be writing, well, you're not experiencing this life and the stuff that you need to be able to write about something, because you can't write about writing. I mean, you can, but it's not usually the best writing. But what I am working on, I'm starting to sit carve more time aside, because I feel like every, I, I feel like I have to write a book every, like, five years, it's my gestation period, and I just feel like I have to, something starts happening where I'm starting to get a little crabby now because I want to be writing and so I'm starting to carve out time in the future but my life is scheduled to, into 2017 already so um, so if you don't plan ahead it's very difficult but I am working on this project now called um, Border Borderless and it has a photography book with uh, poems uh, dealing with the topic of borders both physical, psychological, virtual, um, in terms of America, what are those dividing lines that we have as far as race, immigration, uh, socioeconomic differences, um, mental health, homelessness, where, where are these lines and these borders that aren't always about just, you know, it's not just the U.S.-Mexico border, it's the, the sense of border in a larger kind of, larger figurative sense of how we divide ourselves and the fact that can we even do that anymore because really the world is borderless uh, more and more every day so it's it's a fun project so and I'm very sort of focused on very different for me it's still my same obsession about home and belonging in place you know how do we fit in these borders and you know how are we home how is this home what is this country really at the end of the day where we made up of and and are there these borders or aren't there um but a much more sort of less autobiographical sort of work which is exciting and new for me and when will this be out oh i'm not sure like maybe a year or something like that and it's a fine art book press there'll, there'll only be like a hundred um there um eventually there'll be a commercial version but this is sort of a, one of those fine art presses that do books like that are like 10 feet wide. <laughs> These are books that go to Library of Congress and collectors and things like that. But uh, eventually, um, I'll either take those poems and put them in a larger collection of my own and without the photographs, or they might do a commercial version of it. 
Well, lastly, Richard, just tell us what are you reading right now? What am I reading right now? A lot of blogs for my blog, <laughs> for uh, my guest bloggers for uh, Bridges to Cuba, Bridges to and from Cuba, which has to do with the whole Cuba thing. Uh, so that's what I'm reading. And a lot of books on diverticulitis <laughs> for my health. Um, uh, and I have two books that I, that I have on the shelf, not even on the shelf, on the table to make them stare at me and say, read me, read me. And, and one is Sandra Cisneros' uh, uh, new, she doesn't call it a memoir, but it's kind of like a memoir. It's uh, 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 her new thing. It's all prose on, I forget what it's called. It's called a, a, a Home of My Own or something like that. And it's all really all her story about her sense of place and identity throughout time until present. And another one by uh, Dan Bukatinsky, who is who is my writer, uh, who's working on the TV show for the memoir with me. Um, well, he's doing it. I'm just helping him with feedback, with, with some ideas. Um, and his, uh, he's a funny writer. His, his book is called, uh, Does This Baby Make Me Look Gay? <laughs> it's about being a, a, gay parent, a gay father. And it's like, he's a funny writer, obviously. And so, so those are things. But I, I like to read outside of my genre a lot um which i think surprises people sometimes i mean i find that i get very inspired by reading a lot of sort of social uh, sort of psycho spiritual books i'm fascinated by psychology and i think that's part of like what being a writer is sort of diving into the human psyche and trying to uncover trying to work your way through it and uncover or solve some of the issues of our who we are as human beings and our behavior and our emotions. So I love reading psychology books, psycho-spiritual books, um, science books, things that talk about big stuff like, you know, God and these kinds of, you know, and, you know, black holes and that kind of the mysteries of the universe and, and of our being, uh, which poems contain as well. But I, yeah, I, I, I find them just as inspiring as reading poetry. Well, Richard Blanco, I just want to thank you so much for being a guest with us today. Thank you, and thanks for coming all the way to Westchester. <laughs> thanks so much for having me. You can find out how to win a free signed copy of The Prince of Los Cucuyos on our website, readmorepodcast.com. And if you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at Read More Podcast and like us on Facebook. Please join us again in two weeks for another edition of the show that brings readers and writers together. Until then, I'm Marva Hinton, reminding you to read more. <laughs>